0: So whether or not you're a fan of football, you probably understand the objective is to score, right? And in football, scoring is, yes. <laughs> scoring, is, uh, scoring is pretty straightforward, right? You got some pass plays, you got some run plays, sometimes there's like a mixture of both. Um, but every now and then, you, you'll see a play that's just completely out of left field, that like doesn't make sense, there's no structure, there's no you know, uh, pattern or formation and yet it's still effective in accomplishing the end goal, right? I wanna score a touchdown, and they're called trick plays, right? And they're usually employed by teams that are losing with very little time left in the game, right? And so in somewhat of a desperate attempt not to lose the game, they they implement methods of distraction and confusion um, for the sake of scoring, right? And I know what you're thinking, it's probably a little too soon to be throwing out football analogies for our Chiefs fans, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) I know the Chiefs could have used some trick plays last week, but I won't. I won't go there. Um, but the argument can be made that cheap plays are somewhat kind of, you know, or trick plays are somewhat kind of cheap, right? If you can't, if you can't win straightforward, you have to like corner or cower into this like mode of trying to use confusion and distraction. And so the reason why I share that is because today we are talking about opposition, and I can already hear it. Like, didn't we just talk about opposition? You know, two weeks ago, and. To that, I say two things, right? One, yes, we talked about opposition, and thank you for your faithfulness. May God bless your faithfulness in tuning into uh, the guided gatherings every week. Um, But two, opposition is persistent. There's a persistence to opposition, right? And the reality is because we live on this side of heaven, and Satan isn't completely done away yet with, and his day will come, but he's still roaming the earth, he will always be opposed to the things of God, and therefore... There is a, uh, a persistent nature to uh, opposition. And so here's the thing about Satan, though. If he, can't, if he can't get what he wants with a direct attack, he'll often change his strategy and employ what I would like to call trick plays, right? Mm-hmm. Where if I, can't, if I can't come at you directly, I'll use confusion, distraction, other things to get your eyes off the prize, to get you off of the path that God wants for you. Um, and complete my objective, whatever that objective is. And so we'll see that in Nehemiah 6 today. We'll see that as Nehemiah presses on to fulfill the mission and vision that God has for him, there's going to be a a playbook of trick plays the enemy throws at him. And so if we're going to discern and we're going to overcome opposition, it helps to know how the enemy operates, right? So that's where we're going. Um, I'm going to have my good friend Nick Wong uh, read Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 9.
1: Hey y'all, I'm Nicholas, and I help co-lead the college CG on 37th Street. Um, Nehemiah 6, 1 through 9. Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Haqafurim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Samblot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And there is written, It is reported among the nations in Geshem, also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up to prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from their work, and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so quick recap. Um, The names
0: in the first verse should actually sound familiar to you because these are the same names that were in chapter four. These are the same guys that were outwardly opposed to the building of the wall, right? And so they come with a direct attack at Nehemiah and his group of people. And their intent is to taunt them, mock them, hopefully discourage them from completing the work. But fast forward to chapter 6, and they hear word that, like, yo, our attack didn't work because they're about to finish building the wall. Mm -hmm. So they come back um, and, you know, employ somewhat of a trick play. But the first thing to to say before we even go into that is opposition is often strongest when God's about to do something really big, right? Um, And so in their last-ditch effort to halt Nehemiah's vision from coming to completion— they take, they take a, a friendlier approach to seeing his vision thwarted, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you can hear it. You can, you can see it in the way that they throw out an invitation, like, hey, a bunch of us are going to, oh, no, bro, you trying, to, you trying to come kick it? And if you really think about what they're saying here, just really think about it. These guys are leaders of nations, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're influential. And in their language, you hear them, come, let us meet together. We got a mm-hmm. secret club, Nehemiah, and we're inviting you into right. it. The only catch is, The clubhouse is in the plains of Ono. It's 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem, about a two-day journey, right? Right. So in order to be a part of us, you've got to drop what you're doing, and you have to leave the community that you built your vision around in order to be a part of our little influential circle. So they're using influence as a means to distract Nehemiah from the work of God and remove him from the people of God. And immediately we see the root desire of every trick play the enemy will ever employ towards the people of God, right? We see the root desire and what will be the thesis for the sermon that every trick play the enemy uses, and we'll see it here, we'll see it throughout the rest of this passage, has a goal, and that goal is to distract you from the vision and mission God has for you and to isolate you from community, right? And so when we look at the enemy's playbook, we'll actually summarize that end goal here, that as you're moving forward, he wants to distract you and isolate you, right? And this is actually very strategic, right? Understand that the enemy here is is very strategic in targeting Nehemiah, right? In order to stop the work... He tries to distract Nehemiah knowing that if Nehemiah is to leave his community, it actually deals a triple blow to the work of God, right? Not only is Nehemiah vulnerable, because even though he's the leader, he needs his community, right? Um, And so he's vulnerable without them, but his community is vulnerable without him. They're, They're following him. He's their visionary leader. And so you have two parties that are hurt by it, but then the work doesn't get complete because he's the one that's motivated them and mobilized them. This is why fighting for community is such a pillar here at The Well, when it comes to withstanding against the schemes of the enemy, right? Fighting for community isn't just some catchphrase that Tori and the boys made up, you know, when the church started, right? It's not, oh, dude, find community. No, fight for community. (laughs) That's much like cuter. It's like, no, it's not cute, right? Fight for community. There's an aggressive nature to that statement, right? It's not cute. It's we fight for community because the enemy is f- fighting to isolate us from community, right? And in doing so, we are most vulnerable to the attacks that he keeps, or that he hurls at us to keep us from walking out the mission and vision of God. And so we see how Nehemiah responds in verse three and four. Notice that he doesn't say, hold on, guys, I'm I'm working, right? No, I'm doing a great work. Nehemiah sees the value in what he's accomplishing, right? And now remember, I could say like, okay, Nehemiah has his eyes on the prize, and you may be tempted to think that the prize is the wall, when in reality, it's the people of Jerusalem, right? Remember, like, Nehemiah's entire vision exists because of his heart for the people of Jerusalem, and because of that, the work flows out of a great love for the people. And so he values the work because he knows who it's benefiting. Because God-given vision will always always flow out of ourselves and amount in the blessing of other people, right? And because of that, their attempt to distract him fails. That love for his people, which amounts to his love for his work, produces in him a dedication that allows him to discern when the enemy is trying to distract him from the mission Mm -hmm. and the vision of God and his community, right? Yeah. I know before I got married, I didn't realize how many don't like how many things in marriage would actually fight for my attention and affection mm-hmm. um, and distract me from really pursuing my wife the way that God calls me to. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I was reluctant to say that because I'm like, am I going to be judged for saying that? But then I was like, no, I'm not. I mean, all of us are spitting vows. Like, I love you, sweetie. I always cherish you. I'll pursue you. I'll never, I'll always pray for you. But for me, fast forward a month later, and like, I'm working crazy hours at work because my eye, like my, the prize, my the prize of pursuing my wife is starting to to kind of decrease in value because the enemy is trying to distract me, take my eyes off that prize and put it on the prize of, promotion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so he knows that distraction will ultimately, unattended to, create division. And yeah, that's, why he, yeah. that's why he attacks, right? Yeah. Um, that's why he attacks. And so um, for me, realizing that dedication to my wife allows me to see when anything is tempting me to distract my oh, focus yeah. and my vision and take my eyes mm-hmm. off of him, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so because of Nehemiah's dedication, their trick play doesn't work. So then they switch tactics in verses 5 through 7. We see that an open letter starts to circulate. We'll touch on the open letter a little more later, but when we read a little bit and see the contents of the letter, notice how many times the words reported and you are mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. So so you, there's some sort of accusation there. That's accusational language. You're doing this. You're doing that. Mm -hmm. But then they tag on it's reported because it's not actually an accusation, it's a rumored accusation. So this is somewhat of a, of a fabricated accusation towards Nehemiah, right? And, and remember, this is directed right at Nehemiah himself. These accusations are trying to accuse Nehemiah that his vision and mission is actually founded in his own self-interest and not the people of Jerusalem, wow. right? Which we all know is a lie and even all the lies that they tell are all lies. They accuse him of, of wishing to become king. Well, we've read, we know that's not we know that's not true. That's a lie. They're accusing him that he's going to set up prophets to proclaim that there is a king in Judah. That's a lie. And they're accusing him that, you know, he's leading this rebellion amongst the uh, the Jews. That that also is a lie. But what's crazy about this is even though those are lies, they're they're believable because there's some partial truths in there. Not because Nehemiah plans on doing those things, But actually three years prior, there was a rebellion against the king of Persia Mm -hmm. by a governor. And Nehemiah here is a governor, and they're accusing him of trying to do the same thing. And so it's dangerous because no good lie is just a flat-out lie, right? There's some partial truth mixed in there. And so this, once again, it's right out of the enemy's playbook. Satan literally means the adversary, the accuser, right? And Jesus tells us that. Satan—that uh, lies are Satan's, na- Satan's late native, Satan's native, Satan's native tongue. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Now, I, try, I, I, I It is. It's hard. <laughs> lies are his native tongue, and so he's spreading these lies, and we see how he's doing it through an open letter. Right? Here's the thing about an open letter: it's true today as it's true back then that letters are meant to be sealed. Why? Because they're meant for the eyes of the recipient only. Mm-hmm. And so you have these guys that have reached, they have messengers, they're sending an open letter and you know these dudes are are nosy. So they're like, yo, what's in here? And they see all these fabrications, all these accusations, all these rumors, and now slander starts to spread in all of these different networks that kind of surpasses a local level and gets to a national level because these guys are national leaders, right? And so we see here that um, even, we see here exactly what the enemy is trying to do. The enemy is using slander to not only discredit Nehemiah, but to sow division within Nehemiah's community, right? Here's the logic. If I can't isolate you, then I will sow seeds of division within your community, right? And that's what's happening here. Just imagine, like, imagine if Fox News and CNN came together, because this isn't local news, we're talking national news, and the one story they agreed on running was that everything you do for God is actually out of selfish ambition. Like think about the the tension that would create between the people that you're actually serving. They'll constantly think, if they believe the lie, Wow, is he doing these things for my benefit or for his benefit? There's an attempt to sow division here, right? And it's not just between the people, it's also between Nehemiah and the king. If you look at the end of verse seven, we see that Nehemiah is trying to also sow division between him and the king the king who gave Nehemiah the blessing to complete and fulfill the vision of God. So you see seeds of division literally being sown everywhere. And the end goal is to get Nehemiah to fear the opinions, to fear his self reputation. They're using fear of man as a tactic this time to distract Nehemiah from the vision and mission of God and to isolate him from his community. Not only his community, but even his relationship with the king, right? And so, once again, this is a, a trick out of the enemy's playbook. Different, you know, different different trick play, but the same um, the same end result, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. I think that the reality is, the things that the is using at this point, like influence to distract Nehemiah, mm-hmm. right? Um, fear of man, self-reputation, like what people think about me, these things aren't necessarily bad within themselves, right? I mean, God uses like influential people and it's okay to like want to, you know, want people to have positive experiences with you, right? It's okay to want to be nice and like liked, right? <laughs> the problem is, you know, is when those things become idols, right? When mm-hmm. when, when my love for influence or my love for God, I want everyone to like me and like love me or whatever actually becomes a distraction from what God is actually calling me to do. And so for me personally, influence isn't like, I don't care how many followers I have on Instagram. Like, I don't, you won't distract me with influence, I don't think, right? I mean, I gotta, you always gotta keep your guard up, but that's not, especially when it comes to this. But, but, but I will say that fear of man kind of does. Like fear, of, as I think, as I've like kind of reflected on this, I've realized that, man, fear of man is a little bit of my Achilles heel in this, mm-hmm. right? It is something that that the enemy can use, easily use to distract me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, you know, working at corporate not too long ago, perception is reality is the phrase that's around, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be well-liked, well-received, you want people to know what you're doing, why? Because you want to be promoted, right? And so that's kind of the, that's that's the end game, but God called me to be there and I have a job to do and do well at my job, honors God, but he really called me to build and cultivate relationships with the people that I was with. But I could easily get distracted, you know, because I'm just trying to get mines and, you know, and be, you know, and be a, a well-liked, well-respected employee. But fast forward three months or whatever, being in ministry, I kind of expected, yo, this fear of man, is. It's probably going to go away, I thought, right? I Seriously, I was like, why? Because we all love Jesus. Like, we're all running together. Like, all of our identities are in Christ and all of this, right? It's not about us. It's not, it's like, you know, God's doing all the work, you know? And so, yeah, fast, I mean, it didn't take long for me, right? No, it's still there. It's there, hardcore, right? And I even, like, meeting with Tori, like, bro, I feel it in my soul. Like, I desire to be like just an unhealthy amount, like, I care what people think about me an unhealthy amount. And if I'm not careful, that will distract me from the mission and vision God has for me in this season to reach and develop college students for the kingdom of God. Mm. Right? So this is what the enemy is doing here. Uh, but the enemy, or uh, but Nehemiah presses forward. Uh, we see how Nini responds in, oh God. I promised I wouldn't say it. I promised I wouldn't say it. it looks like I'm I'm turning in the Tory. I wouldn't mind actually growing six no. inches, but. I'd like to keep my skin complexion, though, you know what I'm saying? That, that's not a knock at the light-skinned brothers. I like the way I look, seriously. All right. All right, here we go. Nehemiah calls out the lie, right? We see how he responds in verse 8 and 9. and he sh- So he calls out the lie, and then he speaks truth. He, so- he shows great discernment. And so mm-hmm. here's the thing about discernment, though, is it's one thing to know, like, What's going on like what what the enemy is doing but like to understand the intention behind the attacks is a whole nother story Think about when you're in class and you answer an answer correctly feel good about yourself But then they're like, well, why is that answer correct? And you're like, I, I mean, I kind of get like You're <laughs> exposed because because you don't know the why you don't fully understand like what's going on, yeah, right? Yeah. And so we see here uh, that Nehemiah shows great discernment Why because he's able to identify exactly what the enemy is doing. They want to frighten us They're using fear of man. But but not only that, he goes a step further. He knows their intention behind it. They're trying to discourage us. They want our hands to drop. They're trying to discourage us from fulfilling the mission and vision that God has for him. So now here is the beauty of really tuning into discernment here, really understanding um, not just what is a lie, but why it's a lie. Is because Nehemiah knows what is going on, how the enemy is attacking him, why the enemy is attacking him, it literally informs him how to pray, right? He's able to pray a specific prayer targeted at the very element that they're targeting. And so they're targeting his hands, he realizes it, he discerns it, and he prays for his hands. Mm -hmm. I love that, that that discernment allows for specific prayers that we get to pray for what's under attack, okay? Um, and so, uh, so we've seen two trick plays so far. We've seen that the enemy wants to, to to distract Nehemiah from his mission and vision, and isolate him from community. First way was to entice him with influence. Second way, fear of man. Both of them fall short because of his dedication and because of his discernment. So now there are a few more trick plays in the enemy's playbook, but we'll see those as we read the rest of this uh, section. So we're gonna have our awesome HR champion and a good friend of uh, ours, uh, Christy McGriff, read the rest of this passage for us. Nehemiah 6, verse 10 through 19.
2: Hi family, my name is Christy and I'm on staff at The Well. I serve as the HR finance director and my husband and I attend the Terrytown CG. Today, our reading is going to be Nehemiah, chapter 6, verses 10 through 19. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetbel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away... And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to, stop, to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Ulul, in the 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehoabim, and had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Ereshka, and his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. This is the word of the Lord.
0: All right. So we see here that Nehemiah heads to the house of Shemaiah. Now, apparently this dude is religious, right? He's some sort of prophet, but for some reason he's on house arrest because he can't leave the house. And homeboy tries to convince Nehemiah that he should fear for his life and then advises him to to run and hide in the temple, right? The only problem is both this guy and Nehemiah know that That's against the law of God, right? Mm -hmm. They both know, Numbers 18, 7, that if you're going to enter the temple, you need to be a priest. And so, once again, Nehemiah rightfully discerns not only what's going on, but but why it's happening in verse 12 through 13. Nehemiah understands that the prophet is bought, right? The the prophet is taken some sort of bribe by none none other than Sambalat and his homies, Mm -hmm. And, and what they're attempting to do to him is actually one of the strongest um, means of distraction that the enemy can employ against his people, mm-hmm. right? Remember, the enemy wants to distract you from the mission and vision God has for you, isolate you from Uh, your community, and one of the best ways he does that is to shame you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The enemy loves to tempt you into sin. Why? So that he can be the one to tell you, yo, why did you do that? You're a terrible person. You're Mm -hmm. sinful. You're to to shame you, right? Mm -hmm. Because shame takes your eyes off of what God is doing in you, through you, for the blessing and benefit of other people, and has you navel-gazed because you can't get over how crappy you feel and how much you're a failure, and that's what shame does. Like, I am a failure, I am bad, I am all these things, and it's one of the biggest distractions I have seen pick off people of God, right? Mm -hmm. Completely detour them off the vision and mission that God has for them. I remember in college there was a friend of mine, close friend of mine, who came to Christ, was in an organization, came into the college ministry, and was one of those guys that everyone looked at like, yo, this dude is gonna make a freaking difference on campus. Like, mm-hmm. it just influential, impactful, spoke powerfully, you know what I'm saying? And the moment he starts coming, you have all of his friends start to come, and it's just this really exciting thing to see what God's doing through this man. But then he falls off the face of the earth, and I'm like, where, like all of us are like, did he move, where did he go? but I would see him on campus and he would just avoid me. Like he would do this thing where he doesn't want to make eye contact. And I would like at one point just kind of like followed him like, bro, what is going on? Like, you know, we're not strangers. Like what, what's up, you know? And then, you know, it comes to find out he's decided to live with his girlfriend and they're not walking in purity. And the shame from that mm. has completely derailed him, mm. right? It's completely derailed him. And he believed the lie that God couldn't redeem even his own sexual failures, right? And because of that, he completely distracted and derailed from what God wanted from him and completely isolated himself from community, right? And this is the same tactic that Nehemiah is having to deal with here. He's having to discern that, yo, these guys are trying to cause me to sin so that they can shame and discredit me. The way that he's able to discern here, though, is is a beautiful thing. It's his devotion to God that allows him to discern that this is a mighty distraction, Mm -hmm. right? But if you really think about it, this is a prophet. This is someone with a religious title, right? And yet, titles don't matter to Nehemiah. Word Mm -hmm. of God, devotion to God's will and God's word takes president. I can't say that word. I'm not going to try. There we go. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) I was about to say presidents. Um, Yeah, and so here we see it. This is how the enemy operates. As we peer into his, uh, his playbook, we see that, okay, he tries to entice us away. If that doesn't work, he wants to sow seeds of division within community. If that doesn't work, then he will infiltrate community, right? He will try and come in as a as a wolf dressed or a sheep dressed and a uh, wolf. Yes. Bro, I'm sorry, I have I've had very little sleep this week. If you can't tell, so so my brain is like all over the place. Okay, um, but you get you get what I'm trying to say, yes. right? Yeah. And so, really, if you really think about it, though, this is the first time that Nehemiah actually leaves his post, right? Every other attack has either been you know someone sent to him or words sent to him, but he just he leaves and goes. So. You, this shows you that the person that he goes to is, is somewhat trustworthy, like, is somewhat of a friend, right? Um, and so that's why I can say that, yo, if, if all the other distractions don't work, he'll infiltrate your community or will attempt to, right? And so here's the thing. We we often don't realize, you know, God loves to use people to accomplish his purposes. But so does Satan, right? Oh, yeah. Satan does too. Yeah. And what happens when Satan actually uses the weaknesses of the people closest to us to discourage us and distract us from Mm -hmm. the very mission of God, Mm -hmm. right? Satan will always try to exploit the broken aspects of our heart to distract us from the vision and mission of God. And he'll sometimes use our weaknesses to distract others from the vision and mission of God, right? right? And I know we're quick to judge this prophet, but let's, let's not, right? I mean, we see that he's, we don't know his story. We don't know his background. We see that he's hired by the bad guys. The bad guys are liars, right? They could have lied to him. And there's a famine, so he may have fallen to this self-preservation, mm-hmm. right? That they're actually trying to get Nehemiah to fall to, that fear of death. Um, and, you know, you just—we just we just don't know uh, if that prophet had clear vision or if he knew that what he was doing was was actually gonna be used for bad and just ended up cornered in a, I mean, we we don't necessarily know all the backgrounds, right? But we see somewhat of a moral failure there, you know? And so the reason why I share that is because when we look at this story, it's really easy for us as we read to see ourselves in Nehemiah. Like Mm -hmm. we think that we're Nehemiah, right? (laughs) Um, We do. And in some ways we are in the sense that the enemy will try and attack us the same way that he attacked Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah's response, oftentimes we actually fall short, right? Oftentimes we do give into fear of man. Oftentimes we do give into enticement of influence or other things, money, power, whatever. right? Oftentimes we do give into self-preservation where fear of death is not a bad thing in itself. It's just that if it's your idol, then it be, anything that's an idol becomes a bad thing. It distracts you from the mission and vision of God, right? And I think... It's the hardest thing to come to that realization that even your own heart, right, like you're susceptible to be used by the enemy um, to discourage your brothers and sisters. Um, This week has probably been the most encouraging week that I've had since I've been at the well, right? But it didn't come without moments of discouragement. And I know you're like, well, how does that work? Brain twist, right? Uh, you know, a few of my college leaders this week, they they actually, they they sparked this vision for for an event this weekend to really love and shepherd the people that they lead. But I was having a really hard time seeing how, like, the pieces would come together. And, like, you know, I was just kind of, I had my engineer hat on where I was like, well, I don't, I don't see how this is going to work. But one of them came to me vulnerably, like, yo, I just really have a heart for these people. I want to see how we can make this work. And I, w- I answered her vulnerability with, cold logistics, you know? Well, how's that how, How's that gonna work? And well, have you thought about this? And have you thought about that? And before you realize, like before I realized, I actually sounded like Sambala and the enemies did in chapter four, where well, they're trying to discourage. And they're like, yo, is, is that wall even gonna stand? I mean, if a, watch, if a fox goes on it, it's gonna fall. You know what I'm saying? Right? And I realized, okay, great, great opportunity here, Yusuf, to not be Yusuf the engineer, but Yusuf the shepherd, right? I realized that I have that tendency to want to just kind of fix everything, right, um, and engineer a solution to everything. But sometimes I just need to listen and encourage, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's been that's been really good. But but that's not why it's been so encouraging, right? It, it's well, why has it been so encouraging? It's because you realize that you have a weakness, and now you know how to grow, and so you've engineered a problem, like you know how to engineer your way out of it, like no, right? Like no, it's not just because of that. the The reason why I was really encouraged is because. What the enemy was trying to use to divide us, right, actually ended up making us stronger. Yeah. Seriously. Like we, we, were, we were able to give grace to one another. We were able to apologize. I was able to apologize. We were able to move forward with a stronger bond between both parties, right? Grace to move forward, which if you read this chapter, it actually seems somewhat odd, right? Right? Because if you think about Nehemiah's response, not only to Sambalot, but his friends that have gone rogue, the prophets and the prophetesses, (laughs) right? You read verse four, remember Tobiah and Sambalot, O Lord, according to the things that they have done. Give them what they've deserved. They've been coming at me, give them what they deserved. They're his enemies, okay, makes sense, but he doesn't stop there. Also, the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid, right? So here you have Nehemiah praying, not only that his enemies get what they deserve, but also his former his his former friends. And so you ask me, how is it that I'm able to feel encouraged when, if if we were to respond like Nehemiah in this case, then if I would have to get what I deserve, and my des- you know I deserve death for my sin, y'all. We all do, right? And so how are, we able to, how are we able to encourage each other, move past the division, and actually move on to a stronger bond? It's because we are both recipients of the great grace that came as a result of the vision and mission of an even greater Nehemiah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus is a greater Nehemiah. He entered the battlefield, earth, right? Came, coming from heaven to earth, knowing every single trick play that the enemy would throw at him. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of Nehemiah's personal attacks, the enemy tries to distract him using influence, right? Isolate him from his community. That's where he's most vulnerable. And yet, Nehemiah's dedication allows him to match the persistence of the enemy's attacks, right? At the beginning of Jesus's ministry, Jesus is alone. So in some regards, half the battle is, is the enemy's thinking, well, half the fight is one. He's already isolated. He's isolated. He's isolated in this desert, he's vulnerable, and so the enemy seizes the opportunity, but doesn't send a sanbalat or, or an enemy. He actually comes himself because, yo, this is such an opportunity to completely derail Jesus off vision and mission. And so he a- attacks Jesus' identity, but then also entices him with influence, saying, hey, if you bow to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms in the world. But because of Jesus' discernment, his devotion to God, his dedication to his prize— Right? He is able to match the enemy's persistence in opposition and attacks with persistence in the word of God. Hey, if you are the son of God, well, it is written. If you are the son of God, it is written. He is devoted to the word of God. He knows, his, he knows the word in his heart and is able to match the persistence of the opposition. Right After the desert, Scripture says that the enemy left him for a more opportune time. But all throughout Jesus' ministry, you see every single trick play deployed. Mm -hmm. Fear of man. Peter acknowledges Jesus is the Messiah. But then Jesus is like, yo, the Messiah's gotta die. That's the will of God that the Messiah would die for the sins of mankind, all people. Peter's like, may it never be Lord, you'll never die, right? Mm -hmm. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. For you have your sights set on the things of man and not the things of God. They're trying to get Jesus to give into the will of the people, right? The fear of man, Mm -hmm. and completely distract him from his his vision and mission, right? Um, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus. It gets real for him that this is going to cost him his life. This vision and mission that God has for him, it's going to cost him his life in a in a really excruciating and painful way. But at the end of it, even after he asks God if there's any way else may it be done, right? Take this cup from me, allow it to pass, but even still, not my will, but your will be done. There's that devotion that allows him to counteract the fear of death there, right? So when all other trick plays that the enemy deploys against Jesus don't work, right? Fear of man, influence, fear of death, Satan actually has a last-ditch effort to complete completely derailed Jesus, actually ends up playing into the perfect plan of God. Mm-hmm. Satan infiltrates Jesus's community in the person of Judas. It literally says that the Last Supper, that, that Satan entered into Judas. Mm-hmm. And so you have a close friend of Jesus, one of the close 12, betray Jesus. Mm-hmm. But rather than, like Nehemiah, Nehemiah saying to his friends, yo, remember their sins and wrongdoings. Jesus actually just surrenders his life. He allows his friends' decisions to cost him his life, right? And so (laughs) Nehemiah responds by asking God to remember them so that they get what they deserve, and Christ got what we deserve so that in him our sins would be forgiven and forgotten, right? So really think about that, that Judas betraying Jesus is the catalyst that leads to our salvation. Mm -hmm. An enemy disguised as a friend, yet... Through Christ's death, we who were once enemies to God are now friends in Christ, friends of God in Christ, right? And even as Christ is on the cross, there's this distraction thrown at him in the same way that Nehemiah is distracted to come down to, oh, no, they mock Christ, like come down from the cross. And he doesn't. He's fixed on his mission and vision. He has his eyes on the prize, and that is you and you and I, right. us, right? Reconciliation between man and uh, mankind and God, this establishment of his kingdom. Jesus is a greater Nehemiah. And so in him, even though we fail, we we succumb to these trip plays. We can continue to live for God's vision, God's kingdom, because Jesus is overcome. And so just like me, how I realized, yo, my, I had a heart that was kind of discouraging towards towards the people I lead. That doesn't crush me. Why? Because Jesus died so that my sin wouldn't be held against me Mm -hmm. and so that their sin wouldn't be held against Mm -hmm. them as well, Mm -hmm. right? And so there's an ability, you ask me, how are you guys able to just like move on past the, the divisiveness, and really just apologize and and kind of forgive each other because we've been forgiven, right? Because we were enemies to God and he allowed Satan to infiltrate his friend circle so that we can become his friends. It's an amazing, amazing thing, right? Christ has overcome opposition in all forms, in all forms. So even when we fall short, he is our victor. Lastly, we see in verse 15 that the wall was built in 52 days, y'all. So 52 days, less than two months. Imagine that. With all this opposition, the wall takes less than two months to build, and half the time they're building the wall, they, have, they are only using, like, one hand because they have a sword in the other, right? <laughs> right? And so as amazing of a feat that it is, why is it only a verse long? I mean, isn't, isn't that—something's that's, off about that, right? Because isn't this book about the wall to begin with? So shouldn't the book just be over now that the wall is complete? <laughs> right? Doesn't the mission and vision that God have for us, doesn't that kind of take the, isn't that the star of the show? And it may feel like it is when there's so much opposition towards something that God wants you to do. It may feel like that is really like the star of your purpose. Like once that thing gets completed, like, yo, because if there's this much opposition, it must be this great. And not, not really, right? It's great, but it's only a pointer and a picture to an even greater vision and mission, that is the kingdom of God. And all of our individual missions and visions are mere reflections of that. And so what happens is, God allows us sometimes to experience this opposition, not just for the completion of the mission, but so that we actually are revealed and become more like Him in the process, that we grow in our ability to to be devoted, we grow in our ability to discern, we grow in our ability to be dedicated to Him. And through that, he actually shapes us and molds us more into the image like Christ. And so we may get to the end of a mission and vision that, that has taken so much opposition to get there and it'd only be a verse long and be like, well, this, this is it? Yet if we were to really compare the person we were in Christ then to the time when the vision started, Lord uses all of it to grow us because the ultimate vision is that we would be shaped and molded into His kingdom people, mm-hmm. right? right? And so this is a beautiful thing. Um, my prayer is that as we all understand now the playbook of the enemy, the way that he operates, right? That he's going to try and entice us. He wants to distract us from the mission and vision of God. He wants to isolate us from community. He's done that this season, right? In COVID, that we all are, we've all sometimes given to this self-preservation that we forget that, yo, our existence isn't just for us. It's mm-hmm. its to build one another up and it's to build up the kingdom of God. So I pray that in all of it, that we discern Okay, the enemy wants to entice us. He wants to isolate us. He wants to distract us. May we have the dedication, the devotion, the diligence, right, and the discernment to really see how these trip plays formulate in our lives and push past them and overcome opposition, chasing our king who has overcome for us. He is our king. He is our example. And it's a beautiful thing. We get to live in that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. All right. So let's pray. Let's pray. Thank you, God, thank you for this church. God, thank you for this word. Um, Yeah, Lord, I'm really thankful for just what you've revealed to me in this verse and honestly just how applicable uh, it's been uh, this week, God, that I felt so equipped more than ever to really go through what I went through this week. I feel super encouraged that you have been able to just redeem and restore even the times where I feel like my brokenness contributed. Lord, I pray that as we move forward in the vision and mission that God has for us that we realize okay, the enemy wants to distract us. and so would we be discerning and devoted and yeah, that we wouldn't even allow titles and pastors and influencers to to take precedence over your word and what's in your scripture God. That is our our source for truth. It allows us to discern with clarity even when a close friend or a respected elder or a respected, from truth. God, we're able to hang to your truth. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.